Well, uh, as many of you know, Ivy Doherty is very ill with cancer, and uh, Ray is lovingly caring for her. He has bone cancer himself. And on Tuesday, I had the privilege of going and visiting with them, with Ray and Ivy, for about two hours. And brothers and sisters, their intimacy with God is exemplary. Uh, Despite their ailing health, they are trusting God's sovereign plan, counting their many blessings, delighting in God in their journey. And in talking with Ray and Ivy, a theme uh, continues to surface in conversation, relationship with God, relationship with God. Doctrine is oh so important, critical, but it's for the purpose of knowing, loving, and serving God as He truly is. Relationship is key. And that got me thinking about this series. It's deep. It's intellectual. It may sound at times highbrow. And maybe you question its usefulness and its application to your life. Maybe you're having some trouble connecting covenant theology with everyday life. Well, I I hope that's not the case, but it may be the case. And I hope the Spirit of God, I hope that He is opening your mind to comprehend these beautiful biblical truths, but also opening your heart to commune with God more intimately than ever before. It would be tragic uh, if we all believed covenant theology without more deeply communing with the God of covenant theology. Covenant theology is about relationship with the one true covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In covenant theology, it is God who comes to us and unilaterally enters into relationship with us by way of gracious covenant. He does that so we can glorify and enjoy Him forever. God's covenant of grace has a legal component, but it is deeply relational. Relational. Is this series theological? Yes. May it change some of your long-held presuppositions? I hope so. But most importantly, it's intended to take you closer to God to enjoy Him more, and only God can draw you to Himself. Last week was a lot of theology to take in. I know it was. Don't sweat it if you didn't get everything. Uh, I'll review some major points here, but I think as we continue this series, more clarity will come for you. So here are some significant points from last week. Number one, God's sovereign grace. God takes initiative to come and save unworthy sinners and to unilaterally enter into covenant with them to showcase His glorious grace. Abraham is a wonderful illustration of God's sovereign grace. The Abrahamic covenant helps us guard against selfie Christianity. Number two, the structure of Genesis tells us that Abraham is the central figure of the book. Genesis slows down at Abraham because Abraham is central. Romans 4 and Galatians 3 confirm that Abraham is vital to understanding union with Christ and salvation. See, the covenant of grace began in Genesis 3.15, but the terms are fleshed out and ratified in God's covenant with Abraham. God highlighted Abraham in Genesis so that his people throughout redemptive history 
could better understand the gospel. Number three, the one covenant of grace is administered differently in the old covenant than it is in the new covenant. There is one covenant of grace and one people of God who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the covenant of grace was administered differently in the old covenant than it is in the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant reveals that. Now, keep in mind that from Genesis 3.15 on, the gospel is progressively revealed until its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That means the gospel becomes clearer and fuller as God reveals it in Scripture. Adam and Eve believed the gospel, but in basic form. In the form God revealed to them at that time. Abraham believed the gospel with more details added in the form God chose to reveal to him at that time. On it goes until the gospel is fully presented in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we come to Abraham in Scripture, we see the infancy of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine grows and matures through redemptive history until we see it in full in Christ in the New Testament. See, people have only ever been saved by believing God's promises, sovereignly revealed to them, promises which are fulfilled in the person and work of of Jesus Christ. So, it is right to say that the gospel didn't begin in the gospels. It began in the garden and was amplified in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is gospel. That is very important. The Abrahamic covenant is gospel. Number 4, God gave Abraham the gospel. Paul said in Galatians 3:8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Uh, Heinrich Bullinger, the great reformer, said this, Most important, Abraham was promised the Lord Jesus. That's key. What gospel promises had God given Abraham before Genesis 15? Chapters 12 and 13 answer. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring I will give this land. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. I will give it to you. What are all those promises about? They're not ultimately about the nation of Israel and Middle Eastern land. They are ultimately about Christ and his inheritance of all things. Scripture itself makes this point. Not only was Moses building the Abrahamic covenant upon everything he wrote in Genesis up to Abraham, including Genesis 3.15, but in Romans 4, Romans 9, Galatians 3, and in Hebrews 11, Paul explained very clearly that God preached the gospel to Abraham. That the Abrahamic covenant was ultimately about Christ and his inheriting all things and all believers, Jews and Gentiles who share his inheritance via their union with him by faith. Though Israel and Middle Eastern real estate are absolutely involved, they are not ultimate. They are not the be-all and end-all. Christ 
and his being given all the earth is ultimate. Some call it a two-stage fulfillment. Isaac came, Jacob came, the 12 sons came. God honored his covenant with Abraham. In the time of Joshua, Israel took the land promised to Abraham. God honored his covenant with Abraham. But more was going on there. There is another stage of fulfillment, a greater stage of fulfillment. Brown and Keel write this. Quote, the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan were only pictures and foreshadows of a far greater fulfillment revealed in the New Testament. This fulfillment was the result of Christ's person and work, end of quote. So, the Abrahamic covenant is about God promising Abraham Christ and eternal life in him and Abraham receiving the blessings of God's covenant promises by faith. So understand this. This is very important. Abraham was looking to and saved by the same Christ we look to and are saved by, except Abraham believed a basic gospel under the old covenant administration, where we believe a more detailed gospel under the new covenant administration. Same covenant, same Christ, different time and different administration. Do you understand? Now, hopefully you do. A lot happens uh, in Abraham's life between chapter 12 and chapter 15. We can't cover it now, but I'll draw your attention to Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17, where God added to the covenant promises. It says this, The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Those eternal promises, uh, they point beyond the Middle East to Christ inheriting all things and believers inheriting all things in him, in him. This brings us to Genesis 15, one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, all of the Bible. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 today. I'm going to take my time through this. Uh, it, it just get, One sermon gets overloaded with stuff, and then you guys get bulldozed. And So I don't want to do that to you, but I do want to keep moving and not be in Genesis 15 for seven years. So here we go. I'm going to try to break it down in helpful chunks so we can get as much as possible. So one through six today, and here's the primary point that I'm trying to make, and I'm drawing it from verse six. Abraham was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like believers are today. That, that's what I'm trying to do. Now, let me put it another way. Maybe you'll prefer this wording. Abraham received the gospel from God, believed the gospel from God, and God counted his faith in his covenant promises as righteousness. 
Abraham was not saved and accepted by God by works of the law. He wasn't saved by fulfilling the covenant of works. The covenant of works says, obey the law perfectly and perpetually and and live to receive the eternal blessings of life with God. Abraham didn't do that. Adam didn't do that. Noah didn't do that. No one did that. But the covenant of grace, oh, the covenant of grace, it says, believe in the gospel in God's gospel promises and receive the blessings of the covenant of grace, which are given through faith in the chosen serpent-crushing offspring. That's the distinction between law and gospel. Abraham believed and God reckoned him righteous. Where eternal life is earned by perfect law-keeping in the covenant of works Eternal life is received by grace alone, through faith alone, as God's gift in the covenant of grace. Same end, very different means to that end. So here are five points that lead us into the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone. Number one, God promised to be Abraham's protection and reward. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. The Lord came to Abram and gave him gospel. On the heels of a great military victory, perhaps Abram struggled at that point with anxiety or fears, but the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God comforted him with the words, fear not, fear not, do not be afraid, which God established. He established those words upon the reality of who he was for Abram. I am your shield. In other words, Abram, Abram, don't fear because I am your defense. I am your guard. I am your protector. What blessed assurance for Abram. My goodness, that was wonderful. Yahweh added, your reward shall be very great. Now, the Hebrew could go two ways there. One, your reward will be very great. Or two, I am your shield your very great reward. Do you see the the slight difference there? As in, God was Abram's reward. Perhaps it's both. Either way you go there, two things are absolutely true from Scripture. One, God would graciously grant Abram a great reward. Offspring, land, greatness, eternal life, all kinds of blessings. Two, Abram received God, who is himself the greatest reward. The covenant formula all throughout Scripture, I will be your God, you will be my people. God was giving himself to Abram. Whichever way you lean, both are true. Calvin happened to say this. In calling himself his reward, he teaches Abram to be satisfied with himself alone. The meaning then of this passage is this, that we shall be truly happy When God is propitious to us, for he not only pours upon us the abundance of his kindness, but offers himself to us that we may enjoy him. Isn't that good? He offers himself to us that we may enjoy him. God is the reward. Number two, Abram treasured the offspring more than anything else. Obviously, childlessness at this point was obstructing the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. 
And that tension in the story is palpable as you read it. God was promising this great blessing. God was promising this offspring. But Abram and Sarai, they had no kids, no children, and they were old. And they were getting older. Time was fleeting. What's going to happen? God, you're making these promises and you're not giving us the seed. Well, consider these verses very, very carefully. Abram asked in verse 2, what will you give me? Now, at that point, was he ignoring all that God promised to give him? Did he just forget? Well, I guess that's possible, and his faith could have been wavering there, but Abraham also could be implying this. If you prosper me, Lord, as you've promised, what good is it all if you have not given me offspring to inherit it all? The offspring appears to be the focal point here. I think Abraham might be showing that God's promised offspring is of far greater value than all the promises of temporal blessings for Abram himself, maybe even that the offspring is the very source of all the blessings. You promise me seed, Lord. Yes, you will bless me. But where is the promised seed through which blessings come for all the families of the nations, the world? As Matthew Henry noted, Abram had wealth. He had victory. He had honor. Read the story. But the main matter, the pinnacle thing, the seed hadn't been given. So all else was nothing to Abram. I like how Matthew Poole assessed Abram. What pleasure can I take in any other gifts so long as thou dost withhold from me that great and promised gift of that blessed and blessing seed in the giving of whom thy honor and the world's happiness is so highly concerned? That's gospel. That's gospel. Just think about it. God promised Abram in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The seed in Abram or coming from Abram's loins was essential for the future blessedness of all the families of the earth. It was not simply about Abram's temporal blessings, but more about spiritual blessings to the nations through the promised offspring. So where was the promised child. Moses gave us more detail of the gospel of the serpent-crushing seed of Eve. Now we know that the seed will be an offspring of Abraham. Israel and Middle Eastern land are stage one, but Christ and his inheritance of all things is the superior, is the preeminent, is the apex stage two. Think about it like this. Uh, my son, Jeremiah, uh, he loves science. And let's say that I promise to take Jeremiah to Baltimore as a gift for his graduation in the future. The, the Maryland Science Center, by the way, is in Baltimore. And he graduates, and I take him to, to the Baltimore airport. And, um, and I say, son, we're not staying in Baltimore, and, and we're not going to be going to the Maryland Science Center. Well, what, he's disappointed. Okay, man, Dad, I thought we're, what's up with this? And then I add this, son, we're jumping on a plane, and we're heading to NASA's Kennedy Space Center, and, and after they give us a personal tour, and after we get to tinker around with all of their cool stuff, we're heading to the International Space Station. 
Jeremiah, you and I are getting on a shuttle and we're going into outer space. Thanks, Dad. You bet. Who's the best dad? That's right. You know what I paid for this, son? (laughs) All right. We lost our house, son. No, I'm kidding. That's not a worthy exchange. But, now, I'd be keeping my promise. We went to Baltimore, but Baltimore is a thoroughfare to a much greater destination. Israel and Middle Eastern real estate are like Baltimore. Christ, the church, and heaven are NASA and the International Space Station. You following that? If not... I'm going to move on. This leads us to number three. God promised Abraham that his son would be his heir. In verse four, the word of Yahweh came to Abram again. And referring to Eliezer of Damascus, Yahweh promised this. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Or more literal to the Hebrew, one who comes from your own loins will be your heir. An heir is someone who inherits, right? And in in, in this case, the promised blessings once Abraham, Abraham died. God promised the heir would be Abram's son. And this is very exciting. You, you should be getting stirred up at this point because you know where this is going. Do, do you know how Matthew began his gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Bingo! Because of Paul in Romans and Galatians, you have to think past Isaac, past Jacob, past the 12 tribes, past David, to Christ. Christ, who Hebrews 1-2 says is the God-appointed heir of all things. He has supremacy. Now, Isaac is so important to this story. So, so very important to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. But Isaac is not preeminent. He is only a type. He is only a foreshadow of Abraham's greatest son, the heir of all things, Jesus Christ, who possesses supremacy in this wonderful gospel story. Number four, God promised Abraham countless offspring. It's cool what what God did with Abraham here. Very cool. He brought Abram out of his tent, and he had him gaze up at a beautiful nighttime sky. Just just imagine what that sky looked like without light pollution. Now, I read on smithsonian.com, I don't know if that's a good resource or not, but uh, that, that because of light pollution, as few as 500 stars are visible from many urban areas. That's a shame. 500 stars. Abram wasn't standing in Times Square, folks. Looking at 500 stars. He was gazing upon an expanse uh, of radiant and of twinkling, bright light. And God told him, verse 5, look toward heaven. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. God's point was, look at my celestial creation and be stunned at the immensity and the beauty and the number of the stars. You can't begin to count what I know by name. Though you have no son now, you will not remain childless forever. Like the stars, Abraham, I will make your offspring beautifully countless. You see, doesn't God use beautiful 
illustrations to grab our attention. Now think about two-stage fulfillment. Hebrews 11 verse 12 says about Abraham, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Okay, Israel is in view. Absolutely. But then consider Genesis 12, 3. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Consider Genesis 17, 4, where God said Abram would be the father of a multitude of nations. Consider Jesus in John 8. He said to some Jews in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Now, he affirmed their physical Abrahamic pedigree. He affirmed that. But then Jesus added this, which should get our wheels cranking. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus said that. So they were Abraham's physical offspring, but because of their unbelief, they weren't Abraham's spiritual offspring, which is where the scripture places all of the emphasis, being his spiritual offspring. Ethnicity is not the point. It's not where scripture pushes, pushes things. Spiritual offspring. Consider that Paul agreed with Jesus. He wrote Romans 9, 6 through 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And at that point, you're scratching your head. What, how is he using Israel there? Why is he doing that? He he goes on in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What? Well, now he's going to explain in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise, the promise, the promise, the covenant promise are counted as offspring. Who's Abraham's offspring? We are. Believers. Christians. Paul echoed Jesus again in Galatians 3, 7, and 9, which say this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Consider Peter uh, from from 1 Peter 2.9. He said of believers now. He's not talking uh, uh, to just ethnic Jews. He's talking to believers, the church, and he says, you are, and he uses Old Testament language here, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Who's the holy nation? Who's for Christ's possession? The church. Believers from Adam on. Now, what am I getting at? When Abram looked up at the nighttime sky in the land of promise and God said, so shall your offspring be, God's main point was to illustrate the countless number of the redeemed by faith who are united to the promised serpent-crushing offspring. Israel, yes, yes. But even more, the true church of all ages united to Christ. So it is right for our covenant kids, our little dear kids to sing this song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. 
I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. That is exactly right for Christian families. Exactly right. Well, we've been building to number five. Here it is. Abraham believed the gospel and was justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Oh, that this truth would permeate your systematic theology, that it would permeate your entire theological framework. Genesis 15, 6 is one of the most important theological gospel verses in the Bible. It explains how people are saved. Genesis 15, 6 establishes the the grand doctrine of justification by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ. Verse 6 is plain. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Notice two things there. Number one, Abram believed the Lord's gospel promises. And number two, the Lord counted Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Abram was not inherently righteous. Good works were not his righteousness. Fulfilling the covenant of works, fulfilling the law was not his righteousness. Abraham was a sinner, and if you read the story closely, you see where he he doesn't trust God's word. He sins. Look what he did to his wife. Are you serious? Abram, what's wrong with you? Abram was a sinner whom God counted as righteous precisely because Abraham trusted God's covenant promises. Now, how about some synonyms here to drive this home? Abraham believed God's covenant promises and God regarded or reckoned or considered or counted or valued Abraham's faith as perfect righteousness. It's kind of like this in February. I wish Chris was here. But I took Chris to a Lecrae concert at uh, Messiah College. Rap is awesome, by the way. It was it was pumping in that joint. If I'm we're not, it doesn't work. And man, I'm that kind of language. Okay, have to be in inner city Detroit, I guess. But anyway, uh, we, we got into that concert, that rap concert, that Lecrae concert, because I had two tickets. And 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 what if we didn't have the tickets? No rap. That's a bad night. No rap, we're not getting in, unless we had something as good as a ticket to get in. Now, let's say that I had a handwritten note that said, let my homies, Jonathan and Chris, get into the concert. And it was signed, Lecrae. That would be awesome. Lecrae's note would be accepted as if it were our tickets. Abraham had no righteousness. But his faith in the gospel counted as if he was perfectly righteous. God imputed to him righteousness through faith. As John Calvin said, quote, the faith of Abraham, or faith of Abram was accepted in the place of righteousness with God, end of quote. God legally and justly declared Abraham righteous because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Christ alone saves God's grace was offered to Abraham in the covenant promises. Abraham received God's grace by trusting God's promises. This is how Matthew Poole put it. He was fully persuaded that God was able to fulfill and would certainly fulfill the promise made to him concerning a child. 
and especially concerning the Messiah, who should come out of his loins by that child, and that both himself and all people should be justified and blessed in and through him. Yes. Yes. So here's the main point. Abraham was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like believers are today. And I hope you're with me here, but here are three, three more texts, all right, important texts, to drive this point home. And then I'll land the plane. In John 8, verse 56, Jesus told first century Jews now, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, if I look at Van Gogh's Starry Night painting from 60 feet away, and you look at it from 12 inches away, we'll both be looking at the striking painting. But you will see so much more more detail, more color, more depth and texture. Abraham saw the day of Christ from a distance in God's promises. We see Christ in the New Testament up close. And Calvin said, faith has its degrees in beholding Christ. Abraham believed in Christ to the extent that God revealed him it revealed to him at that time and God imputed Christ's righteousness to Abraham by grace through faith. Romans 4 has so much to offer on this topic, and and I read it earlier so that we'd kind of hear it at least a little bit, but these several verses, I think, are particularly helpful, maybe, and uh, and even have an application for us, and I wish I could preach the whole chapter right now, but I can't, but listen closely to these few verses, verses 18 through 25. Listen closely again. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. By the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Get that. Get that. Paul was using Abraham to explain how the Roman Christians were saved, how anybody is saved. Sinners are not saved by works of the law. Let me say it again in case you missed it. Sinners are not saved by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. This is central to the gospel. In other words, like Abraham... They trust God's gospel promises and they give glory to God. Saints, you and I are counted righteous by God, not by any righteousness in you or in me, but by trusting God that we have been crucified with Christ, are dead to sin, are raised with Christ, are alive in the Spirit, 
and that the perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to us by faith. That'll preach, by the way. That'll preach. Faith is so much more than simply believing God exists. What? It's more personal. It's more relational. It's trusting that God's covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ, trusting that they are fully yours, and anticipating the, the blessings of all of God's promises which, comes to, which come to you in Christ. Faith is unwavering confidence in God's covenant promises, and faith is counted as perfect righteousness because the object of faith is Christ's personal and perfect righteousness. Paul explained the law gospel distinction quite well in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And these are verses that confirm my point. That's why I'm sharing these with you. They confirm what I'm trying to say and they give another great application. So listen closely. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Pause right there. If you think that you're righteous in the eyes of God because you're a pretty good person and have done some pretty good things and are better than the next guy, you're under a curse. You are cursed by God if you trust in your own righteousness. Paul continued, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Pause right there. If you want to live, it's really quite simple. Do all of God's commands perfectly all the time. Then you'll live. But you can't. The law will crush you. It will crush you. That's a horrible way to live. How can we live then? Paul continued, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, get this now, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Oh yeah, sign me up. I'm into that. The covenant blessings promised to Abraham Those blessings are for the nations, the Gentiles, for us, so that by faith we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Not only are you justified by faith, but you receive through faith the gift, the gift of God's precious Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Pull it all together. I love what Brown and Keel say. There is no other way to be a child of God than to be included into Abraham's covenant. Understand the point that Scripture is making. Abraham is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like believers are today. I'll end with this. In the 1953 film Martin Luther, Black and White, I recommend seeing it. Luther stands and discusses theology with vicar Johann von Staupitz. An epic scene. And Luther says, By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself, be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. That was great. And then Vicar von Staupitz responds, Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works and all these 
glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? And with epic precision and epic punch, Luther responds, Christ! Man only needs Jesus Christ. I love that. And I love that these reformed thug life guys took it and they put this little music behind it and made it a scene. It's great. Check it out on YouTube. It's hilarious. But I love that scene. Christ, man only needs Jesus Christ. Abraham had Jesus Christ by faith. By faith. And dear saints, so do we. So do we. We have all that we could ever need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we have it by grace, through faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for how clear Moses was and then how Paul just helped us to see the beauty of the Abrahamic covenant of what you were doing. God, if if we didn't have the New Testament, if we didn't have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in his perfect life, in his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to sit at your right hand, God, what would we make of the Abrahamic covenant? But all of Scripture interprets itself. We just need to look at Scripture and see that it was always about Christ It was always about a people being united to him by faith. Thank you, God, for justification by faith. Thank you that we have all of the covenant of Abraham, all of the blessings and the promises fulfilled in Christ, and we receive them by faith in union with him. I pray that this dear church, every single person here, would know what it's like to receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace in Christ by faith, that you would strengthen their faith, give faith where there is no faith. And may people find themselves justified before a holy God and find themselves grateful and thankful and totally in love with with you, Father, because of what you've done for them in Christ. We love you and we thank you for speaking so clearly to us and I pray that we have minds that comprehend and hearts that take it and enjoy. Uh, We love you, God, and help us to serve you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.